if you've got your Bibles open, that'd be great too. So you want to be around about John 18, because that's where we're going to start. And then we'll move our way through. We've been working through the book of John together uh, on the I Believe uh, series we've been looking at. So we've been looking at a number of places throughout John where we're challenged to believe about Jesus. And so today we come to uh, this section of the Bible which is about Jesus' crucifixion. And uh, we've probably heard that many times preached on and we've probably looked at it many times before. And sometimes I think what has happened, we've tended to really focus in on the grotesqueness and the, the horror of the cross and the gruesomeness of the cross. And probably the one uh, film that probably made us do that more than anything else was The Passion of the Christ. Uh, now, don't get me wrong, the crucifixion was absolutely horrific. But if you read the Gospel accounts, uh, the actual Gospel writers don't spend a lot of time talking about how gruesome it was. They mention the crucifixion with one word and then that's it. And then they move on. And I think there must be a reason for that. I don't think they want to completely take our eyes off the horror and the grotesqueness of what happened on the cross. But I think what they want to do is see what's actually behind the cross, the reason for the cross, the significance of Jesus' crucifixion rather than the goriness of Jesus' crucifixion. So today we're going to do that. Uh, We're going to be looking at John 18 through to the end of 19 and we're going to look at more of the significance of the crucifixion rather than the goriness of the crucifixion. Because we need to remember why John was writing the Gospel. Who can tell me why John was writing his Gospel? So that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that we shall have life forever. John chapter 20, verse 21 says that, doesn't it? That's it. That's his purpose. And so I think in his purpose of writing, as John records what happens at the crucifixion, he's got his purpose in mind and so he wants to challenge us to believe that this Jesus on the cross is the Christ, the Son of God, and if we believe in him, we will have life, eternal life. So that's what we're going to do. I'm going to do a little bit with it and hopefully show some things for you from it. But before we do that, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks for your word. We thank you that as we read and have been reading through the Gospel of John, uh, we've been challenged to believe in Jesus. Uh, We've been challenged to believe that he is the Christ. Uh, We pray, Lord, that this morning that as we look at this part of John's account, that our hearts and our minds will be turned to you and we'll be challenged in our belief, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, if you've got your Bibles open, that'll be great because we're going to move through it a little bit at different times. I'm going to pick up on which I think are two key themes in the account that John gives that helps us see the significance of the crucifixion. And I think it's because John puts it there. I don't want you to think, oh, I've just made this up. But have a look at it with me and see why I think this is the case, why these two themes are there and why they help us to understand the significance of the truth of Jesus. And and the first truth that I want you to see is that John wants you to see Jesus as the true king, as the true king of earth and eternity. And I think John does this by being very ironic. He wants us to see the irony in what's happening with Jesus. Uh, Who can remember the song by Alana Morissette? 
Isn't it ironic? Uh, song that she sang. And uh, this is her words in her song. She says, it's like rain on your wedding day. It's like a free ride when you've already paid. It's like good advice that you didn't take. And I think John adds to those lines, it's like killing a man who claims to be a king who really is the king. So let's have a look at it. Open up your Bibles to John chapter 18. Uh, Let me put you in the story so far. We know that we've learned as we've gone through the book of John that over time there's been a group of people that have been more and more peeved off with Jesus. They're getting more and more annoyed with him as time has gone on to the point where they actually want him dead. They're called the Pharisees or the leaders of the Jews. They're wanting him dead. They don't want him around anymore. Uh, But the problem with that is that the Jews in those days couldn't kill anyone technically because they're under the Romans. The Romans were the ones who controlled everything. The Jews couldn't kill people, but the Romans could. So what happens is that the Jews decide, well, let's go and arrest Jesus. Uh, We'll take him to the Romans and see whether the Romans will be able to kill him for us. And so they bring him to Pilate, who's uh, the leader of the Romans in in Jerusalem at that point in time. But you see, Pilate at this point in time also is under the jurisdiction of Caesar. And Pilate's, in a sense, position is a bit tenuous because if he doesn't do what Caesar wants him to do, then Caesar gets rid of him. Uh, If something goes wrong in Jerusalem, then Caesar could get rid of him. So Pilate's playing this bit of a game, really. He's got to keep Caesar happy. He's got to try and keep the Jews happy. And so he's doing this little bit of a, a juggling act to try and make it all come together. And so he finds that the leaders of the Jews, the Pharisees, have brought Jesus along and uh, they've come up to him and they've said, hey, we want this guy dead because he claims to be God. Now, that doesn't work too well with Caesar because, uh, with Pilate because he doesn't really care about that particularly. But these guys are pretty smart. Uh, they know that they can work a little bit. So they actually change the charge on Jesus a little bit and say he actually claims to be king. So in the dark, small hours on Friday morning, they bring Jesus along to Pilate. And uh, Pilate really doesn't want much to do with this at all. He says, hey, I don't want to do this, guys. I want to get out of this. I I don't want to get my hands dirty with this. So he tries to free Jesus a number of times. Uh, But he also knows that if he doesn't help the Jews, then they're going to get really annoyed with him and then that's going to cause problems. Then Pilate might get annoyed with him then he'll get rid of him. So he's got to do something. So he's a bit stuck. So he's playing politics, in other words. He's a pilot. And uh, so let's pick it up. Let's have a look at what happens here. Uh, In chapter 18, verses 33 to 36, we see Pilate and Jesus having a conversation. And uh, let's see what he has to say. And Nigel will read that for us. Chapter 18, verses 33 to 36. Check it out in your Bibles or check it out on the screen. That'll be good. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? It was your people and your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. Uh, Now this is where the irony begins. Uh, This is the catch, you see. Uh, The play between Pilate 
and what he thinks, the play between what the Jews and they think and the way that Jesus responds and the way that a king should look like. Is this the way a king should be? Bound, tied up, about to be sentenced in some way, shape or form by someone else. So from here on we see the story. Pilate tries to prove that Jesus is innocent uh, and he tries to show that he's innocent of being a king particularly by humiliating him. You see, what he does is he says he's going to make out that Jesus can't be king because watch the way I treat him. No king could handle this. And so he tries to show to the Pharisees that he can't be your king either because look at what he looks like now. Have a look at chapters 19 verses 1 to 5. That's not on the screen, so Nigel might just read it for us. of thorns and put it on his head they clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying hail king of the Jews and they struck him in the face once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews look I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe Pilate said to them here is the man See what he's doing? He's mocking Jesus, saying, this could not possibly be a king, guys. Look, I'm belting him. I've smacked him around. We've put a crown of thorns. We've done him up to look like a stupid king, a weak, poor, pitiful king, purple robe, bloodied. This guy couldn't be a king anywhere. I don't find any charge for this guy to be a king. See what he's doing? He's making a mockery of it. He's saying this guy could never, ever be a king. He's pathetic. When he says, here is this man, uh, that is a term of more of, here is this poor, pitiful, lowly man. See the difference? He's not a king, guys. This charge you've got against him doesn't fit him. I can get rid of him now. Look, I've beaten him a bit. I've knocked him up a bit. He looks pretty bad. Isn't that enough for you? You can take him now. He's not going to be a king. He's hopeless. Come on, boys, take him. I find no charge against him. So Pilate's trying to discredit Jesus as a king and to put the Jews off. But the Jews are pretty politically savvy as well, you see. They're not going to let that stop them from getting Jesus killed. And so they try to put him in there again for the next few verses. They keep going and they keep going. They keep badgering him saying, look, Caesar won't be happy. You're going to be in trouble. You're going to, we'll take this to Caesar and you're in trouble then, Pilate. Oh, no. Pilate thinks, well, we've got to do something about that. And then in verses 12 to 16, they still try to go at him. And they have a go at him and in the end, they actually commit blasphemy. So have a listen to what happens in John chapter 19 verses 12 to 16 and notice the number of times the word king is used. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. 
Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldier... Oh, oh, that would be great. So there's four times the word king is used. You see what John's saying? He's saying they're trying... He's showing the irony between what they think a king is and who Jesus is as the king. Uh, Pilate still thinks this is a joke. He says, this guy's no king, but Pilate's a puppet for Caesar and his tenure in Jerusalem is on a very thin wedge. So he gives in, doesn't he? But did you also notice the exchange where the, Phar- where the Pharisees, the leaders of the Jews, show their colours and they actually commit blasphemy? Look at verse 15. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? And they say, we have no king but Caesar. Now that is the ultimate blasphemy for a Jew. They have said that Caesar is greater than God. That is how desperate these guys are to have Jesus killed. But you see the murking there, the irony again. They've actually given up on the king that they should be, who's right in front of them, but they've given up on the king that they recognise as God as well to have Jesus killed. And then the ultimate insult. Uh, in the next text, we won't read it, but in the next part we see that what does, Caesar, what does Pilate do? He puts up a sign. And he just doesn't put up a sign. He says, the king of the Jews. And he doesn't just do it in one language. He does it in three languages. He does it in Aramaic. He does it in Greek. And he does it in Latin. Why does he do that? Because he wants everyone to see how pathetic this is. They're all the languages of the people that were around. So that anyone who walked by would know this is a sad state. This is a pitiful king. The Jews are pathetic. Jesus is pathetic. This king you're talking about is hopeless. He's just rubbing it in, isn't he? The ultimate kick in the guts. Pilate is saying, I have the power and you don't. The irony of it all, isn't it, is that they've all missed the true king. You see, Jesus knows he's got to go there and we'll get to that in a minute. But Jesus is the king of all creation. The Bible tells us he was there from the beginning. He he was part of, as God spoke, Jesus went and created the world. He's the king over not just the Jews, not just the Pharisees, not just Pilate, but he's king over everything. And his kingdom isn't a kingdom that's just here, that Pilate's was, his own little kingdom was Jerusalem. He lasted for a couple of years. Pilate, maybe for 20 or 30 years. Jesus' kingdom goes for the whole of this life and into eternity. And his people can only enter into that kingdom if he dies their death, if he takes on their sin. And he proves that he's king by coming back to life. 
The greatest conquest ever is death. The greatest conquest is defeated by Jesus. The greatest king is Jesus. Jesus is the king now and for eternity. Isn't it ironic? There he hangs on a cross with his arms nailed, mocked and mockingly by others around him. But yet he is the king. And the question I think that John is asking us this morning is have we missed the king? Or have we recognised the king, Jesus? And the question I think we've got to ask ourselves as well, is he actually practically our king? Or are we practically atheists? That is, we say Jesus is the king, but we live our lives as if he isn't. Matt said it took him five years to come to that conclusion that Jesus is the king, that he is who he claims to be. And from now on then, it's been a life-changing and life-moving thing. It's been a, a journey throughout it. But I've got to ask ourselves, don't you? Do we really live as Jesus, with Jesus as our king? Is he the one we bow down to? Is he the one that directs us? Is he one who has authority over us? Is he the one that we live for? Or do we just sit him to the side and in a sense mock him in some way? I think that's a challenge that John's giving us this morning. John wants, to see, wants us to see the irony in this count. He wants us to see that, tr- that to truly be king, that for Jesus to truly be king, he actually needs to die. Because he ha- to establish his kingdom, he's got to defeat everyone's enemy. Not just the bloke next door, not just the other country, not just the person that's rising up as an infidel down the road, but the enemy that all people have of sin and death. That's how he's the greatest king. And I think John wants us to see that all this is no accident, that this is something that has been planned from the beginning. Let's have a look at the number of times that John mentions throughout this passage. He says, so that it shall fulfil. So, uh, Nigel, jump to chapter 19, verse 24. If you can read that for us. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. And then go to verses 36 and 37. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And, as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. So what John's doing, he's saying that what happens here in Jesus' death has been prophesied about hundreds and thousands of years before. As Matt said, he went through and he looked through the Bible and there were quotes in the Bible that came to fruition in Jesus. That's what John's saying here. 
He says it was quoted back in Psalms that they would divide his clothes and they wouldn't tear them. It was quoted back in other parts of the Bible, I can't remember the exact ones, I think in Ezekiel, about the fact that his bones won't be broken. It was prophesied, the scripture says, his bones won't be broken and that they will pierce his side. And if you read through Isaiah 53, that's exactly what it says. These are something like 800 to 1,000 years before Jesus was even around. As Matt said, have you ever predicted that you could have had a phone in your pocket that could take photos 10 years ago? Would you have ever predicted that you could be on the internet and you could be talking to your son 700 kilometres away, directly across, and you can be looking at him and he's speaking to you on a camera. He's there and he looks just as bored as we did when he talks to us normally, but he's there and you know that he needs a haircut because he's got all this fluffy hair. How would you ever have thought that you could do that? You wouldn't have done, would you? And you couldn't have predicted that. Oh, but you might have heard of guys who do do predictions, like Nica, Nica, no, Nica, Nostradamus. Uh, remember, he was really popular for a while, wasn't he? Because he came up and he got a couple right. Close, anyway. But you don't hear about him now, do you? You don't hear about him at all. But here, we have stuff that's talked about thousands of years, about thousand to eight hundred years before, comes true in Jesus. Because it's no accident. God had this sorted from the beginning. God knows it. Jesus knows it and knew it. Look at chapter 19, verse 28 and 30. You want to go for that knowledge? Sorry, he's writing something down. 28 and 30? Yeah, 28 to 30. So 28, 29. All three. Yep. Okay, so back into chapter 19. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Did you notice there the words completed, fulfilled, and finished. Notice that? Jesus knew this was happening. This was where it was all coming to. This is where it was all focused on. This is where God loved the world so much that he gives his only son. It's where Jesus becomes the bread of life. It's where the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. It's where we see that no greater love than this is that a man who gives up his life for his friends. It's where the gate of eternity is open wide for all those who trust in Jesus because it's where God's wrath and his justice and his mercy and his love meet in one action. It's the most powerful demonstration of love the world has ever seen or will ever see. I read a story recently about uh, settlers in America when they used to go across the, across the grassy plains and the prairies of America. Uh, they used to do something when they saw smoke coming. They'd smell the smoke in the air. They'd see the flames from a distance if there was a, a fire coming across the prairie. What they would do is they would light a fire in amongst them and then fan it out and spread it out so that it burnt a whole area around them. Didn't quite work at the right time. I should do another one. Uh, burnt a whole area around them, and then when the fire came across the prairies, because that had already been burnt, it would go round them. 
and miss them. They were safe because it had already been burnt before them. That's what Jesus is doing on the cross for you and I. The flames of God's wrath are being belted on him so that they don't hit us. So that we can be saved from those flames. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says this, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. He says, you know when you get a magnifying glass and you get the sun rays and it comes down and you can magnify it and then you can burn things. And if you're a really deviant youth, you used to burn ants and bugs and all sorts of things because you could just go... And that's what the cross is. It's the magnifying glass of God's wrath coming down, focused and burning upon Jesus. You see the stunningness, the... the, the the awesomeness and the awfulness of the cross is not so much the blood and the pain physically. It's the pain that Jesus experiences for your sin and for mine. You see, we needed someone to take God's anger at us, for us, on behalf of us because if it didn't, it would destroy us. That's the challenge, isn't it, that John puts before us this morning. Jesus takes that for you and I. Jesus, in a sense, covers us with his wings and protects us so that we don't have to take on that judgment. He dies for you and I so that we may love and be loved for eternity. That can be for you and me. That is for you and me. John challenges us to believe it. Jesus, the true king, who came from God on a mission, a planned mission. This is no accident that's happening here. A mission that was to culminate in the cross where God's anger and wrath is focused on Jesus so that you and I could experience his love and his mercy now and for eternity. John's question to you and me this morning is, do you believe it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we just take a moment to allow that to to settle, to sink, to penetrate our heart. Lord, we have often heard about the story of the crucifixion. We've often read it at different times. We see it in different ways and formats. And sometimes it just passes by us, Lord, as something that happened, but Lord, it's more than something that happened. It's, it's, a, it's your love in action, Lord. It's your grace and mercy that you would send Jesus to die in our place, to shield us, to protect us so that we don't have to face your anger or your wrath, Lord. 
that Jesus, the King, takes on our sin and our death and bears it upon himself so that we may live. Lord, that's, that's something worth contemplating more and more each day. We pray and we ask, Lord, that by your spirit you will apply that to our hearts and to our lives and that we will be changed and that we will be transformed into people who believe in Jesus, into people who live with Jesus as our King. We pray this in his name. Amen.